Back a few weeks ago, you might remember that the kingdom of Judah had been destroyed. And the people had been taken exiled, just like God had promised would happen to the kingdom of Judah. There were actually three deportations, the first in 606 B.C., where the royal court was taken. That's when Daniel was taken. In 597, 598, the craftsmen were taken. That's when Ezekiel was taken. But then the total destruction of the kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem occurred in 586 B.C., and the remainder, most of the people were taken away at that point. Only a few people managed to escape uh, and remain behind. But God had promised after 70 years of exile to return them back to the land. And so in 537 B.C., Zerubbabel, and that's 70 years from that first deportation, just as God had promised, Zerubbabel took a number of people back. 558, Ezra did the same. And then we've been studying from Nehemiah about 444 B.C. when Nehemiah took a smaller contingent of people back with the burden to rebuild the walls and the gates. And we've been talking about that for a number of weeks. In Nehemiah chapter 1 through 3, we see how we saw how God worked to bring Nehemiah back to Jerusalem by giving him favor in King Artaxerxes' eyes. The king actually sent him back to Jerusalem with his blessing, with his authority to accomplish the task that God had given to Nehemiah. So God worked in King Artaxerxes' life just like he did in Nehemiah's. God is sovereign over these situations and God was at work. God gave Nehemiah the job of leading the people to rebuild the walls and the gates. But as we've already seen last week, and even back in chapter 2, it wasn't long before opposition began to arise its ugly head. First of all, we saw, and we talked about this last week, how the enemies used ridicule in an attempt to intimidate the Jewish people, the Jewish workers. We saw that in chapter 2. They questioned their authority to rebuild and their ability to rebuild the walls. And in chapter 4, they use ridicule of the Jews, but this time the ridicule is directed towards the Sumerian army. This is psychological warfare. It's meant to motivate the troops. This intimidation via ridicule it's not the only tactic that Satan uses against the Jewish people. When intimidation doesn't work, the enemies resorted to the threat of violence. And that's what we come to today. The threat of violence. They were seriously threatened. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. Last week we saw three rulers involved coming against the city of Jerusalem. Sanballat, the governor of Syria, 
that was their northern enemies, the northern enemies of the Jews. Tobiah, the governor of the Ammonites, that was their eastern neighbors. Geshem, the king of Kedar, that's the southern neighbors, the Arabs. But now there's a new group mentioned that's not been mentioned previously in the book of Nehemiah. The Ashdodites are added as a part of the opposition. That's the western neighbors. This is where the Philistines once lived. So what we're getting at here is that they're now surrounded. I mean, they're coming from every side. The army is getting bigger and they were threatened. Surrounded by opposition. And notice the opposition. It says that they were very angry. That word angry in the Hebrew means to burn or be kindled with anger. This is not biblical anger. This is fleshly anger. They were threatened. Their interests were threatened. They did not want a secure Jerusalem because it threatened the interest of those surrounding nations. Look at verse 8. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. They plotted together. It means they bound themselves together to fight. That word literally means to make war. They were coming in battle against Jerusalem. And they united together with one common purpose. And their purpose was to stop the building of the wall. A secure Israel, a secure Jerusalem was against the interest of the surrounding nations. They, it says they were attempting to cause confusion. And that word is really interesting. It's actually hard to translate, but it means to cause an error or a moral mistake. So it seems, I mean, it certainly involves confusion, but it seems these adversaries were seeking to cause the Jews to make a spiritual mistake, hoping that the threat of violence against them would make them think that obeying their God to rebuild the walls was not worth it. Hoping that they would give up, that they would conclude it's just not worth it. I mean, it's hard enough as it is, but now our lives are being threatened. They're going to come against us in battle. Now look at verse 9. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as night. They don't give up. They don't quit. Notice Nehemiah's response. He turns to the Lord in verse 9. Just like he did in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. He calls on Elohim. That's the word translated God here. The omnipotent, sovereign authority. The strong one with great authority. Nehemiah does exactly what he should do at this point. He calls on the one that has authority. He calls on the one that is omnipotent, that is great, that is strong. And he prays to him. And that's what we need to do. But he doesn't just pray. He calls on them to pray and work hard. Look at verse 9 again. And we pray to our God, Elohim, and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. See, they trusted God. They called upon him. They depended upon him. 
but they worked hard. They took action. They set up defenses, prayed, and worked hard. If we pray and do nothing, we are in practice hyper-Calvinist. And we're missing the opportunity to serve God. If we work hard and do not pray, we are in practice Arminian. We are demonstrating that we can do God's work without him. You know, I remember in Canada, for most of the, like 10 years that I worked up there with the natives before there was a change. And we worked hard. It was night and day. We did everything that we could possibly do to try to reach the natives. But we weren't praying. I wasn't praying the way I should have been. And I look at back, I look back at those years and think, what was accomplished? We did a lot of things. We met a lot of physical needs for the native people. But we really wasn't depending upon God to work in the people's hearts. We were trying to do it all ourselves. We were acting as an Armenian would act. And it amounted to nothing. It wasn't until I began to pray and trust God that I began to see God at work in people's lives. Prayer demonstrates dependence upon, upon God. To fail to pray demonstrates dependence upon ourselves. It's been said that nothing of spiritual value will ever be accomplished outside of prayer. We need to fall on our knees before God. If we're going to serve God in this life, it will be because we depend upon Him. We were never created to be independent of God. Adam and Eve in the garden sought independence. They wanted the knowledge of good and evil for themselves, not to trust him on a daily basis. So may I challenge you, God has called us to serve here in Myrtle Beach. We need to work hard. We need to give of ourselves. But it means nothing if we don't fall on our knees before God and trust him daily, depending upon him. The Jews had already begun to rebuild trusting God and working hard. Now they would pray and set a guard, a protection. And there's no conflict here. We talked about it last week. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are taught throughout the word of God. Remember Isaiah 10, where God says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. They were the rod that God's using to judge his people, Israel. But woe to them for doing it. He's using them, but he's judging them at the same time. Because there's no conflict between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. While we can't reconcile this in our minds, they're two distinct truths. And in reality, they do not contradict. In the mind of God, they do not contradict. The danger is denying one or the other. God is sovereign and has decreed all things. Yet man is responsible for his thoughts and his actions, both the good and the bad. You know what I think? I say, praise the Lord that God is sovereign and worthy of our trust. 
but I also praise him that his understanding is greater than mine. You know, there's a sense in which I'm glad I don't understand everything. If I understood everything, then how could God be greater than me? God is so much greater than you and I. We should expect that some things may not always make sense, but we believe them. We believe in God's sovereignty and we believe in man's responsibility. Psalm chapter one, excuse me, Psalm 147 verse five, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. We can't even measure his understanding. God has perfect, unlimited knowledge that is without measure. And we can thank God for that this morning. I believe that God's sovereign. And I believe that we are responsible for our actions. I can't explain everything. But I know that it's true. Here in Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 9. He says, and we pray to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. They prayed and set a guard. They trusted God and obeyed his instruction. They believed the Lord and got busy. The Jewish people did not let the threat of violence hinder them from doing what God had commanded them to do. We are a part of God's work today in the church. You're here at Cornerstone today. It's not by accident. It's according to God's perfect will or you would not be here. God has given detailed instruction in his word concerning what we're to do in his service. We are to unite as a local body, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, for the unity of the body, and of course, for the glory of God. This is first accomplished through prayer. It involves disciple making, preaching the gospel, teaching the word, using our spiritual gifts to serve one another with a unified purpose. It involves leadership, both inside the church and in our homes, teaching, caring, compassion, grace, mercy, and discipline. Demonstrating the love of Christ Sacrificing to meet the needs of others. Remember, a true believer is one that has forsaken all to follow Christ. And the law is now written on our hearts. It's the new covenant. God has given us changed hearts, hearts of flesh. And the laws are summed up in two commandments. Jesus said it in Mark chapter 12, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. It's not that we're not under the moral law of God. It's that God has changed our hearts. We don't need a list. We don't need the Ten Commandments. If we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We will love God and love our neighbors. You see, ministry is not that difficult to figure out. We fall on our knees and get busy 
doing what God has commanded us to do, knowing that both trusting God and hard work matter. They both matter. We might not understand it. We don't understand how it fits together, but we believe it because we believe God and we trust him. But for the Jewish people, there were more problems. Look at verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we're not able to rebuild the wall. The Jewish people started focusing on the task, the overwhelming enormity of the work that they had to do. Their strength was failing. They started getting tired. Because remember, the higher you build, the harder it gets. There was too much rubble. We can't do it alone. The higher, the harder. And they began to get discouraged. Notice what the Lord told Joshua in verse 9. Have I not command? Is it? I think it's verse 9. That could be. A mistake, I'm sorry. Hang on just a second. I know what I know what I'm doing here. I lost my place. What the Lord told Joshua in Joshua 1 9. Sorry. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And the same thing applies to the situation in Nehemiah. The same thing applies to us today. That we need to be encouraged. We need to be courageous. We need to move ahead. You know, I know we have less people than we would like to have here at Cornerstone. And nothing against anybody that's not here. But sometimes less is better. It was with Gideon. 22,000 warriors. It was too many for what God wanted to do. Gideon asked anybody that's nervous, anybody that's afraid about this battle, go home. There were 10,000 left. And what did God say? There were too many. And then God gave, uh, gave uh, Gideon the test how they drank water, whether they were prepared and on guard when they did so. How many was left at the end? 300 men? That's all God needed. That's all God wanted because it was about demonstrating that it was God that was going to lead them to victory. It was God that would give them the victory. We believe God is sovereign here at Cornerstone Church. We are exactly where God wants us to be. It's not an accident. You can trust Him with all your heart. All the way. Maybe the work in light of our numbers looks overwhelming, humanly speaking. It's not because it's God that will accomplish the work. It's not dependent on us. God's given us the privilege to work hard. But victory is the Lord's. Right? Trust Him with all your heart.
not only were they facing an overwhelming test or task, their enemy had a plan in verse 11. Our enemy said they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. They, the Jews, were being threatened with a surprise attack. You know, that's the greatest weapon in battle. Catching one's enemy unprepared means everything in battle. And these surrounding nations were a threat. They were not messing around. They were planning an ambush. They were ready to kill Jewish workers to stop the building of the wall. Look at verse 12. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. So surrounding Jews, I mean, we don't just have Jews living in the city of Jerusalem. There are Jews living all around Jerusalem. And they saw that the enemy was preparing against them. And they came and warned them ten times. They were persistent. God used these surrounding Jewish people to warn the city inhabitants. And they understood the threat that was against them. They knew that they were in trouble, humanly speaking. And it appears at this point they had to stop working and prepare. Verse 13, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the walls and open spaces, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Nehemiah took action. He stationed men in family units in open places behind existing walls. They didn't sit back and say, God will take care of it. They wanted to be used by the Lord. They did not take the easy way out. They got prepared. But even with this preparation, the people had fear. And we can understand that. There was fear in their hearts. Verse 14, when I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. This is what he said. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Remember the Lord and fight. This is the word Adonai. The Lord. It's used by Jewish people a lot of times instead of the word Yahweh. Because Yahweh was the holy, the most holy name of God. He refers to Adonai as the one that is great and awesome. Great in respect to his attributes. God is omnipotent. He is great in every respect. He is awesome. The word means to stand in awe of to fear or to have reverence. You know, sometimes we use that term loosely, but I would suggest that it's only God that is awesome. Maybe we should reserve that word for him. Only God is truly awesome, for he is awesome. Remember the Lord. And fight. Here we see the same thing again. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Fight for your families. Fight for your homes. 
it's not now just about the wall. It's about protecting your own people. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plans, then all of us returned to the work, each to his own work. The enemy found out, found out something. They lost the element of surprise. And surprise means everything in warfare. This had destroyed the plans of the enemies. And so the Jewish workers returned to their work. Look at verse 16, 17, and 18. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall, those who carried their burdens, took their, their load with one hand, doing their work, and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword, girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. This defense, or even half of the people, now had to stand guard. And those who worked had to be ready at every moment to fight. Even the workers had to be ready. Verse 19, I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So if anyone at any place on the wall, near the wall there, where they had set up these defenses, sounded a trumpet, because there wouldn't be many people at any one location, everyone was to rally to that location and fight, coming to help, hurrying to the location of battle. And the same thing's true today. We must be ready to defend one another. To come to aid. Constantly listening to one another. To see when someone needs help. Someone is struggling. And in love, go to that per person and assist. Our God will fight for us. They were to fight like their lives depended on it. And their lives depended on it. But they were not to depend upon their own strength or abilities. They were to trust in God to give the victory. Our God will fight for us. He will give us the victory. Here Nehemiah again identifies God as Elohim. A strong one with great authority. That's who they were trusting in. Then we come to the last three verses, Nehemiah 4. So we carried on the work with half of them holding their spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time, I said to the people, let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by, net, by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes each took his weapon even to the water. So even the Jews that lived outside the city that would come in for the day to work or to guard, they started staying in the city. They slept in their clothes to be ready at any moment. 
Even if they went for water, they had their weapon ready, prepared for every eventuality. Notice Nehemiah includes himself, none of us. A godly leader doesn't just give orders. He's right in the middle of the battle. He's one of the warriors. He's one of the workers. The people of Judah did not let discouragement prevent them from doing what God had directed them to do. They didn't let hard work, difficult work, threats of personal attack, long hours, battle, nothing prevented them in the final analysis from obeying the Lord. And we must not get discouraged in the battle either. Not hard work. Not discouragement. Looking after one another. Not the lack of response in ministry. Not personal conflicts or differences of opinion. We must love one another by the Spirit of God. Our love for one another should be greater than any disagreement. any trivial disagreement of opinion. We must forgive one another. If God has forgiven me, how can I not forgive someone that has offended me? When we consider how great our sins are against God, the fact of who he is and we sin against him, how can we not forgive one another? For we have sinned against the holy God. Last night, Pastor John wrote an applicable statement. So I'm quoting him this morning. He wrote this. Lastly, we would like to continue to encourage each of you, member, regular, attender, to let brotherly love continue, Hebrews 13.1, and to fellowship, pray for, and with one another, and to always seek to be us to be salt and light in all your surroundings. We are anchored by our cornerstone, Jesus. And in light of what I was studying at the time that came through, it was so applicable. Let brotherly love continue, love one another, work together, serve one another sacrifice for one another the Christian life is not easy this is not your best life now sorry but it's not only in the sense of having the Lord in our hearts and having peace and joy but as far as living the life you trust the Lord and live for Him, it may get difficult. We saw in Hebrews, the Christian life is like running a race. It's to be ran with endurance. We must throw off every weight, every sin. Everything that gets in the way of running the faith race, get rid of it and run the race. 
anything that entangles us. Because those who continue till the end are the ones that demonstrate that they're truly born from above. We must continue in the work, continue in the battle, continue in the faith. That's exactly what genuine believers do. They persevere. Those that have been born from above. It's a work of God in our hearts. You must be born again. You know, one time George Whitfield wrote about this lady that approached him. And she asked him, why do you preach so much about being born again? And Whitfield looked at her and said this, because, dear lady, you must be born again. If you do not have a new heart this morning, if you're not a new creation in Christ, if you've never been changed from inside out, you must be born again. You must be born from above. John said to Nicodemus, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is like the wind. It blows on whom it wishes. You must have a spiritual birth. To live this life without being born again means that we die in our sins. He that believes on him is not condemned. He that believes not is condemned already. To not be born again, to not be born from above, to have a spiritual birth is to die in your sins. It's to face God in eternal punishment. But for those of us that have been born again, it means everything. The sting of death has been taken away. Paul wrote, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, excuse me, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting of death has been taken away. And we see that so vividly after Lazarus had died. And Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I mean, but that's a long time away. That's what she's insinuating here. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you really believe it? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you're the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. He is the Messiah. You are the Messiah, and I have believed it. 
You were the one promised long ago. You came. You are the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Mashiach, the Christ, the God saves, Emmanuel, with us, the God. God came to this earth. And he went to the cross of Calvary. After living a holy life, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. And he rose from the dead. The first fruits of everyone that believes in Jesus. Are you trusting him this morning? We always have to go back to this. Because what does this mean apart from Christ? Nehemiah points to Christ. It's not about a man named Nehemiah. It's about the God of the man, Nehemiah. Let's pray.